0: Welcome to Pharmacy Fika, the podcast where pharmacy educators come to refuel and reflect. Just like a Swedish fika, this is your opportunity to
1: pause and enjoy a beverage and something nice to eat. At the Pharmacy Fika, we explore teaching and learning and how to navigate the highs and lows of academic life.
0: Think of it as a coffee break for your academic soul. So grab your favorite beverage and let's dive into today's conversation. Good afternoon, everybody. We're recording this late in the afternoon in the United States because, of course, Tina Brock, one of our FICA crew, is in Australia, and it's very early in the morning for her. And we have a couple of terrific guests with us today, Denise Roney and Zubin Austin. Denise is with the University of North Carolina, and Zubin's with the University of Toronto. Uh, But before we get into our discussion and why we invited our guests today, I wanted to start with a little talk about snack choices and beverage. And because it's late in the day, I've got my vitamin water to rehydrate myself a little bit. And so that's the only thing I brought today. How about you, Tita? What do you got?
2: I have a little bit of Nespresso in my North Carolina Gray Squirrel mini cup and a piece of dark chocolate. I need it. It's the beginning of my day. I need it.
0: Yeah, and speaking of dark chocolate, and uh, one of our favorite fans of dark chocolate, (laughs) Kristen. I have already had my quota
1: of dark chocolate for the day, sadly. (laughs) But I do have
0: a big water bottle with me. There you go. Jeff, if you come out with anything other than water, I'm going to be shocked. Zubin, how about, what have you got?
3: I just think it's wonderful all of you can talk so freely about food, because some of us have a medical appointment tomorrow and some of us are not eligible for food at the current time, and I'm going to leave it at that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that does sound pleasant. (laughs) Wishing you love,
4: top to bottom.
0: (laughs) How about you, Denise?
4: So what I brought today is a Diet Cheer wine, which is a uniquely North Carolina soda that I miss so much when I lived in Michigan. And so I've been enjoying it now that I've been back in North Carolina for the past 12 years. So it's wonderful.
0: Great. We're so pleased that you and Zubin could be here with us today. And the reason why we invited uh, Zubin and Denise to be with us is because we wanted to talk about competency-based education. And as many of our listeners know, there's a movement afoot. And medical and health professions education and in pharmacy education to move closer and closer to a competency-based education but there's still lots of remaining questions like what exactly is it and is it feasible and is it the right time for health professions and pharmacy education in particular to move towards a competency base so I, my first question really is to both of our guests who've written extensively about this is what in your view is competency-based education. How would you go about defining that?
4: Well, I guess I'll get started. As a part of the AACP Task Force on Competency-Based Education, the first thing that we set out to do is actually define it. Because as we looked in the literature and we read articles on competency-based education, so many people didn't define it. And so it became, are we talking about the same thing when they're reporting outcomes or how do we know what it is. And so we did a literature synthesis to come up with a definition. I would say five big components that we talk about and five key pieces. The first thing when you think about competency based education, it has to meet societal needs. Anything that's designed around it, it has to be to fulfill societal need. And that's the big thing. But it's a real world in the, in the experiences and the assessments that you do. The other piece is that you have an outcomes-based curricular model, and I think it's important to understand the difference between outcomes and competencies. Outcomes are kind of the big picture. That's what we have with COPA. That's what a lot of people have. It's the big picture what you expect a learner to do. And for us, it's entry-level practice for person-centered care. But within those outcomes, there's competencies, and they're kind of the smaller pieces that you have to build to get you to the outcomes. When you think about competencies, you would have a milestone that they would need to achieve across whatever unit of time, but just milestones they need to achieve to get there. Um, it has to have a learner-centered culture, and it changes to put the learner in the middle to learn how to learn uh, a lot, focused towards self-directed learning not for the educators to be the sages on the stages and giving them all the content, but teaching them how to learn and coach them through it. You have to have authentic teaching and learning aligned to the assessments and authentic, meaning real world, what you're doing or what they're going to do when they go out in practice, not hypothetical, but just real world. And, and we look at pharmacy education. We've started that with EPAs. EPAs are the assessment unit to evaluate, are they ready to do it in the real world? And then finally, the elephant in the room is the de-emphasized time component. It's the flexibility in learning. And while we think that that's a big stumbling block, it's actually a really important critical piece because learning is not is not linear. And we're seeing that now with students with all these different world experiences coming in, their their learning doesn't always happen in our linear curriculums. And that if you have some flexibility, that they can master it when given the time, and some will get it earlier than others. But this model, theoretically, would let those that get it earlier continue to progress and not be held back while the others are catching up, so to speak. So those are the five key components.
3: I'd add to that excellent summary that when we talk about competencies, the word sometimes gets a little bit uh, eye-glazing, perhaps, for some listeners. But the idea, I think, behind it is really something that we can all relate to. Certainly when I was in school, and possibly when many of you were in school too, there was a strong emphasis on knowing things. And we would get tested using multiple choice questions. All that was needed was for us to be able to demonstrate that we could remember, recall, and regurgitate. And a few years after that, we started to shift a little bit away from simply knowing to knowing how to do certain things. And we'd be, have to be able to explain to somebody what in a hypothetical or a case-based situation we might be expected to do, but even that's not good enough. And a few years after that, things evolved towards showing. So we're going to watch you do things. So it's not, we don't, we can't tell what's actually going on in your head. We don't want you just to describe in a hypothetical way, what, what you're doing. We want you actually to show under sort of controlled circumstances that you you can actually do something. But even that's not sufficient. And today, and this is where I think competency-based education is really very pioneering, is that we want our learners to be able to do things. To do things when they're not being watched, to do things when they're not being graded, and to have a certain kind of a confident competence around the activities that are important for patients. That transition from knowing to knowing how to showing to ultimately doing is really at the core of what competence-based education is trying to achieve.
0: I think many of us and many educators and many institutions already believe that in some ways they're delivering competency-based education. And I'm curious about how far away we think we are from the ideal. What are some things that we're getting right now in 2023 that actually are approaching the goals or the, the ideals of competency-based education versus where we need a long way to go.
3: So, Stuart, are you sort of asking a variation of a question like, can you be a little bit pregnant? Can you, be a, can you kind of be doing competency-based education? Is that the, uh, yeah, the question kind of, that you're asking? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's probably a lot of Debate. I would actually say, and especially Denise has very carefully laid out for us some definitional parameters, and those that are very invested in this concept would say, certainly we can be doing things that are leading us towards competency-based education. Competency-based education is not built in a day. There's lots of stepping stones along the way. I think most people that are invested in this area would would be a little bit cautious about suggesting that just because we're doing bits and pieces of things, we now fall into the competency based education bucket. There is a rigor to this methodology, there are sort of some standards and expectations that are aligned with it. And while understandably it takes time to build the infrastructure to get there, prematurely labeling something as competency-based education when it's just bits and pieces of activities at this point, it's, it's probably not all that helpful, either for learners, for faculty, or for any external stakeholders.
4: Like as you have been said, you're not going to just turn the switch tomorrow by any stretch of the imagination. And most of the things that I talked about in the definition are just kind of good educational practice things that we should be doing. No matter whether you have the time variable piece or not, which really is the part that really makes it true competency-based education. The other pieces you can do with or without the time variable piece. There is a great publication that puts some parameters. They're called quality indicators around each of those kind of components for higher education. And and, and within it, it will help you determine if you are initial, emerging, developed, or highly developed. We're going to use that same framework and help the Pharmacy Academy do a benchmark to like, where are they in this process? Because some will be further down on some and not on others. And, you know, we're doing bits and pieces of it. But to the purest and to get the data that we need, we have to make sure that we keep with a common language and using good implementation science principles to get to the data pieces that everybody's going to want to see to know that it, it is better.
0: So Denise Zubin, wh- what do you see as the next big step pharmacy education needs to take to get toward that? So we defined it. But now what's the, what's the next hurdle to clear?
4: I think we need defined core competencies for COPA. If you look, medicine has this. They have milestones set. That's the core. Now, that doesn't mean that programs can go beyond what the core is and try to take students at different levels. But what is the core that has to be developed in all programs? Right now, you know, some programs may have competencies. They may not. They may think there are competencies. the We use outcomes interchangeably with the word competency as well, but to have something that kind of shows a milestone that's transparent to the students that exactly what they're doing and when they're doing it and what they need to be expected to do, I think that's the next big step, Jeff, because without that piece, it's hard to do the alignment and the other pieces to it. We've got a good start with the outcomes and with the EPAs. So what we need is the in-between part. We've got the sandwich. (laughs) We need the meat now.
3: And I I think a very challenging, I'm coming from a different country, obviously, than the United States and a different practice context. But a challenge that we're certainly facing in Canada and I think anywhere that's going down this path is coming up with a common, with a consensus on what are the competencies that we're really interested in. And so, for example, a big issue in Canadian pharmacy practice today is the scope of practice for pharmacists has expanded so significantly is the extent to which pharmacists are engaged in independent prescribing. And those that are sort of really sort of pushing on one side, say the, the, the main competency in pharmacy education is confident independent prescribing, full stop. Others would say, well, we're not quite there yet. Some provinces have some things that independently are prescribed, but others don't. So there's there's l- lack of consensus within pharmacy about what the The real competencies are. There's a lot of political blowback that we need to manage when suddenly uppity pharmacy educators are talking about independent prescribing. But beyond that, there's also a whole host of, I'd say, non technical competencies that are a real challenge to get our heads around. So, one that we're grappling with right now is the idea of climate conscious pharmacy practice. How are we actually going to embed climate consciousness into the day-to-day activity of pharmacists. Is this actually a core competency? Is this scope creep? Is there enough evidence to support climate conscious pharmacy practice as a competency? We layer on other evolving trends, everything from artificial intelligence and how it's meant to, what are the competencies around that to pharmacists' roles in dealing with social and political inequities. So how big or small you want to frame competencies is an extraordinarily painful, but absolutely central debate. It's not simply about understanding G-protein coupled receptors. It's about the human, interpersonal, political, sociological, economic kinds of competencies that pharmacists navigate on a day-to-day basis. And I think we're, we're certainly struggling to figure out what are those? How, how feasible are they? How politically acceptable are they? How far can we push certain things before people throw up their arms in disgust and storm out of the room? We don't know.
4: The other part of this too is making sure there's a connection and realizing the competencies are for a lifetime too. We may define them up front, but now that we're having to push even to, to CP residency training, etc. These things need to be thought of across the, a, a professional's career and not just pharmacy school. Right now, we have a disconnect even between our COPA and the residency outcomes. And so I think now as we're starting a l- huge conversation, I know Canada's uh, done a lot with CPD. I think it's important to think about making sure it connects. If we build it like this, it needs to connect from the beginning because it's harder to do it once it's out the gate.
3: But the other part of this too is even though like, time focus is not a central part of, of competency-based education, there really are only 24 hours in a day. And as we start to talk about competencies that people might think are incredibly important for today, for tomorrow, and for 10 years from now, how do we actually realistically get this into something that vaguely resembles a curriculum, a university-based program? But the pressures and the overloading that can sometimes come from CBE discussions is a really important issue.
2: A couple of things. I would say one of the things I would go back to Denise's first comments is I think our biggest challenge is meeting societal needs. I think that's the part that we've kind of gotten away from. And Zubin's example of the climate conscious pharmacy practice is a really good example of that. But a great paper about challenges to implementation of competency-based medical education it was focused on medical, but they came up with four things. All four are man-made things. They're all like systems we've created and then somehow have loss aversion about changing. So to me, when the challenges are man-made, I think it is human factors change. It is not, we are asking to to walk upside down or something that, that might not physically be possible. These are things that are possible. And one more thing, I'm going to tie it back to our session on interprofessional education is colleagues came up with that model that says there's sort of disciplinary co- competencies and those are specific to pharmacy. So nobody but pharmacy is going to use those. There's common competencies and those might be what I would call the power skills, right? That all health professionals need to be able to communicate with inclusion and equity with patients. And then there's the interprofessional competencies. So those are the ones we have to do together. So I would suggest we sort of focus on those common competencies because that raises awareness across other health professionals what each group is contributing. So when we're talking about something about independent prescribing, if we if we said the following X number, I'm going to make up five, health professions need to be able to prescribe independently. Here's the core competencies of that that are agnostic, then that gives us not only clear societal need based competencies but a way to communicate across health professions about that
3: the the idea of like societal need which is so central to cbe i think one one of the one of the challenges i guess i've underestimated over the years about that is of course in today's world how do we define societal need and who gets to make some of those decisions let me give you an example so this is sort of a real world example from my own my own university we've had recently Take a, take a topic like vaccines. And if you think about pharmacists and vaccines, what I think back to when I was in school, what did I learn about vaccines? And if you're of my vintage, what you learned about vaccines was probably about the immunotherapy side of things. like How do vaccines actually work? What are sort of the mechanisms of actions of vaccines? And that seems like not an unreasonable thing for a pharmacist to know, but Is that actually what society needs a pharmacist to know, to know how to do, to show all of those things? And gradually it's morphed. And for a while, pharmacy education focused a lot on supply chain. It focused on storage, very practical things. And maybe we don't need to worry so much about the details of how a vaccine works. We just need to make sure that the vaccine is stored properly, it's refrigerated, it's prepared properly, it goes into the right kind of syringe, and only for a certain amount of time, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're even drifting away from that to saying, well, maybe there's other people that will worry about that. And now, what society needs are people who can deal with misinformation, people who can engage in public education, people who can you know, combat all manner of, of Of fake news around this and get people vaccinated. The competencies of a person who understands how a vaccine actually works, to managing a complex supply chain, to actually talking to individuals and communities about misinformation, there are a whole range of competencies. Pick. Of course, we want people who can do all of those things, but at a certain point, we need to start to pick what is the competency that society needs these people that we call pharmacists to actually focus on. Because we can't say D, all of the above, for everything.
2: I I agree, Zubin. But I would also say part of that curricular hoarding is that once something gets on the list, it never gets bumped off. Even if the technology advances, when pharmacists had to hand compound every medication, We certainly needed, there was no mass manufacturing. We needed a different skill set. It was still about the medicines, but we need a different skill set. As that has evolved, I would say we would look back at what does society need from pharmacists? And it might not be that all pharmacists can create medications themselves. I probably chose something very controversial. I hope that we'll get lots of people calling in saying everybody needs to be able to do this. But I just feel like we get things on our list and then technology adjusts. I would say an early competency for me when I was first graduating from pharmacy school and I didn't work in a place that had a computer electronic health record. I had to highlight on the MA- MAR with my highlighter. It's a very, very important skill that I know what to highlight, what not to highlight. I really don't need
4: that skill anymore. <laughs> and I think you're highlighting what a lot of employers are saying, Right is that, that we're not flexible to adjust with the rapidly changing complex healthcare system because of our rigid curricular systems and models. And that might be one advantage to CBE to help release some of that, to make you more nimble, agile, flexible to adjust because they're coming out and they're, they're putting them through extra training when they first get out to be able to practice in their health system.
0: So I want to bring up, I think, about the need for a clear Delineation of what competencies are and how difficult it actually is to arrive at a common set. But another part of this is the assessment piece. So how do we know once we arrive at a list? How do we know people have achieved the competencies? How do we declare that you're ready? <laughs> you know, and I think that's another piece that is potentially quite vexing because many of our assessments are not authentic. And even in authentic environments, there's so much variability in how assessments are done. So can you speak a little bit about that? What work do we need to do and what are the issues in terms of assessment?
3: There's not a lot of rocket science in competency-based education. A lot of it is rooted in simply just good teaching and learning and assessment practice. And good assessment practice is actually all about Multiple opportunities, multiple eyes, multiple directions, and looking at just different kinds of assessments at different times, some of it formative, some of it uh, summative. I think the short answer to your question is to resist the temptation to think that assessment in competency based education is this crazy, otherworldly, impossible kind of activity. It's built on the foundation of good assessment practice and simply has a a different object of interest, and that is these competencies.
0: The problem is licensure is based on a slice in time. So we have the luxury as educators to see someone grow and develop and have multiple looks at them over time. And we as a faculty can say, we've seen enough of what you are capable of. We believe you're ready a licensure exam is not like that and so we often are teaching towards a licensure exam so perhaps that is the one area where we do need to make some adjustments well
3: it depends on what part of the world you're talking about licensure exams because certainly in some parts of the world like Canada New Zealand there are different forms of assessment there are for example osce's that are part of objective structured clinical exams that are part of the licensure process, and students are prepared for that part of the licensure process through their professional education. So, there are choices that licensing bodies are making, choices educational institutions are making, but there are actually different bits and pieces and models that I think uh, speak to that principle of multiple assessments, moving pictures, and all of the things that, that we want our assessment programs to be.
4: Yeah, I agree. I, I think you you would have to make the assumption that with multiple opportunities, more practice, that they'll, they will still be successful on the NAPLEX. I think the big thing is, is that it's not just doing assessments to do assessments without any clue on what you're doing, right? It's aligned. You have to have your outcome competency aligned to the assessment that's aligned to your pedagogy and how you're teaching it. And that's something that can be done. Now, whether or not you do C- CBE or not, and, and so the students would know what they need to learn. So it's not just about doing a bunch of assessments to do assessments. I'm just sitting
1: here thinking about curricular design, and I wonder if this approach feeds our desire to control the educational system and to produce through all of our mechanisms the, the right discrete um abilities. And I I wonder if that kind of reductionist approach that we can take a societal need and we can drill down to the specific competencies and we can name however many competencies. And Zapin did a beautiful job of describing how difficult that is, but let's say we can. Let's say we can name all the competencies and we can set up authentic learning and we can be learner-centered and we can Do these great assessments. That structure just gives us so much comfort, right? We can do this, but can we really? And even if we do, we know that there's going to be a problem the day they graduate because there's going to be new stuff. Those competencies that we so carefully labored over, there's now going to be new ones that are needed. And so I just wonder if we're kind of fooling ourselves with all of this and we're missing the bigger picture. Of what we really need to be doing in education. Food for thought. Reactions.
4: Well, clearly the one of the biggest pieces when you look at the learner centeredness, it's not just the flexibility in their in their matriculation through the program. It's teaching them how to learn to support the lifelong learning. And knowing that you can't teach everything and you've got to pick at this point in time, I, I can identify the dissonance in what I know and I don't know. That's what we've all done, right? And nothing I've learned in pharmacy school do we do today, not one thing, self-directed learning, right? So it's it's it. I think that that's what we do and how do we model that and instill that in it? because it's even more important for them because the world is changing so quickly and so fast. And so I do believe that CBE does focus on self-directed learning. That's the key piece that sometimes traditional curriculum struggle with because we're just trying to get through the checklist of all the content we got through.
3: So you, you, you completely were right on about Kristen's really interesting and actually in some ways pivotal question. Cynthia Whitehead, who's a medical educator, has written quite a bit about this and is uh, one of the stronger, I'd say, critics of competency-based education. And she kind of describes it very similar in the way that you did, Kristen, by talking a little bit about education that's focused on characteristics versus education that's focused on character. And the idea here is that there's been a time um, in pharmacy education we've been really, really concerned about, for example, critical thinking. We want all of our students to graduate as critical thinkers. We want them to have a certain character. We want them to have a certain kind of propensity, attributes, worldview, whatever you want to describe it, but she talks about it as a certain kind of a character. And as long as they have that character, they'll fill in all of the gaps. The flip side of that, and this is where she suggests CBE really falls, is that that's too vague, it's too nebulous to talk about character. We need to prescribe the characteristics, the specifics of what they're actually able to do in her writing, she suggests you can you ha- you can only pick one or the other. You cannot have characterful characteristics or characteristics that somehow add up to a character. You really have to choose as sort of an underlying curricular philosophy which way you are going. I'd say historically, we have focused very heavily on character and not as much on characteristics. Um, I'm not sure how well that's worked for us in the past, however. And so where CBE really comes in is really trying to define imperfectly in an evolving way, in ways that are clearly not ever going to be as comprehensive as we'd like, but at least it's an attempt to enumerate characteristics that can provide some kind of a roadmap for better understanding than character ever could. For for people who are only listening and not viewing, you've got to see the Cheshire grin (laughs) that... That Professor Yankee's actually got on her face right now. <laughs> I hear what you're saying, but I think a lot of it is, I think the reality is that at a time when individual faculty members ran their own kingdoms and everybody did their own thing and we didn't, we may be pleasant to each other, but we weren't collaborating. We weren't focused on a curriculum for students. It was a series of standalone courses and I do my thing, you do your thing, and just stay out of my sandbox. That is, I think, actually the fundamental problem historically that, that we really need to address because we just, our students just get so overwhelmed and confused when a bunch of well-intentioned, highly opinionated professors teach the way they know it should be taught. But when we're not talking to each other, we're not thinking in a curricular kind of a way. a a, a recipe for mass confusion on the part of students.
0: Amen. So that's a beautiful spot for me to ask one last question, which is one of the principles of competency-based education is to rethink the idea of courses and time as a fundamental units of learning. What would a competency-based curriculum look like in your mind If you were to design it from the ground up and you could get rid of the pre-existing structures that we have, which are based on course units and time, what would it look like? Because I think that might transform the way faculty interact with each other. Because right now we're based on courses and time allotted to us in teaching our courses.
3: So I would actually say we're in the middle of a curricular renewal process at the University of Toronto. And this is the exact question that we're asking in my mind whether you are in uh in canada australia the uk or the united states i think we need to teach for the for the, for the future and for the highest possible um role for pharmacists and in my mind that is independent confident responsible prescribing and Everything in a curriculum needs to answer the question, does it teach you to be independent? Does it teach you to be confident? Does it teach you to be responsible? Everything needs to, in my mind, focus on that target. Whether today you're prescribing independently or not, you will be one day. That's definitely coming down the pike, no matter where you are. And that's what we, I think, ought to be teaching towards. Any any shred of content, any assessments, any kind of learning opportunities, it needs to add, answer the question, does it teach independence? Does it teach confidence? Is it, does it teach responsibility? If it does, it stays. If it doesn't, see you later.
4: Stuart, I think what you're trying to get is kind of how we envision that to happen. <laughs> so how does that happen? And I think you have to break the silo of courses. Courses largely don't make the connections for students. And we just hope that students make connections on their own. This is where if we get to the defined competencies and milestones, helps you create units of learning for achievement of those competencies and the order in which they need to happen. And there has to be a greater link between the experiential and the didactic curriculum in a CBE model. It has to be all as one. Right now, they're kind of like two separate curriculums at many institutions, not all. But faculty are are more coaches in this model than they are the sages on the
0: stage. I've wanted to wrap up our episode because there's so many good things here, only to draw one other analogy. When I was a kid and I learned English and how to write, it was all broken down into component parts and naming things. And now today, it's whole language. We don't break it down. You live the language. And I think that's what we're talking about here is teaching not all the little components and hope they put it all together. It's actually teach it all together in a holistic way rather than breaking it all apart and hoping that you'll be able to put it back all together. So with that, I'm going to say happy holidays. It's a new year for all of us when this episode comes out.
3: So happy new year, everybody.
4: Happy new year. And thank you so much for the invite to be on this episode. It was a lot of fun.
3: Happy new year. All the best for 2024. Happy new year.
4: Looking forward to 2024. Happy new year. We're better
2: together.
0: Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Fica, a podcast where we enjoy coffee and conversations. If you liked this episode, please pass it along to a colleague
1: and be sure to rate us.
0: You can share your reactions on Twitter at Pharmacy Fica, but please be kind. This is a safe space.
1: Got a question or want to suggest a topic for a future episode? Leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash Pharmacy Bye
0: for now. Namaste. vidanya.
1: Au revoir.